The season of Easter is longer than the season of Lent. Have you ever noticed that? We put a lot of emphasis on Lent as a season in church. We start with these rituals of Ash Wednesday. We give something up or commit to a discipline. We join study groups. You know you're in a different season in church during Lent. You can't miss it. But I think we often tend to think of Easter more as a day than as a season. It's a day for flowers and special foods and beautiful, joyful music. And then it's sort of back to business as usual. Back to school, back to work, back to whatever it is you gave up during Lent, back to singing alleluias in church, as though that's kind of all there is to Easter, a day for celebrating. But the church insists that Easter is in fact a season of its own, and it's longer than the season of Lent. We have 40 days to prepare for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and 50 days to let it sink in. 50 days to make some sense of the enormity of what God has done in raising Jesus, and what that means for our lives and for our world. It's not long enough, really. The truth is you can spend a lifetime engaged with the Christian faith and only glimpse the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the resurrection. Still, Easter is a season, and there's a wisdom there that we miss if we only think of it as one day. Because the news that's proclaimed on Easter morning, the news that Christ is risen, isn't something you simply get. It's news to be grappled with, wondered over, lived into, talked about with others. The Bible actually depicts it in just this way. The Easter stories are not stories of people immediately understanding everything, immediately running around with confident proclamations to share. No, they're stories of people sensing the earth shaking beneath their feet, and then little by little, each in her own way, making some sense of what that all means. So, if you are not altogether sure what the resurrection means for you and for our world this morning, take heart. You're in good company, and we are still early in the season of Easter. Our reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning is one of these making sense of the resurrection stories. The disciples are huddled together shortly after Easter Day, over the past 24 hours, they have received three separate testimonies that Jesus is risen. First, from the women who first went to the tomb that morning, then from Peter, and then from the two who encountered him on the road to Emmaus. They're talking about all of these extraordinary reports they've just heard when Jesus himself is suddenly there among them. It seems the first thing that Jesus wants to clear up here is that he is not back on a revenge mission. He has not come to mop the floor with his disciples, his closest friends who all disappeared in the violence and the danger of his arrest and execution. Peace be with you are Jesus's very first words here, and they are words of surprising and profound grace, of healing after the trauma of the past days. So he's not back for punishment or revenge, don't miss that. 
And there is something else that he wants to make abundantly clear as well, right from the start. He has a body. Look at my hands and my feet, he says. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The image here is clear. Jesus holding out his wounded hands for the disciples to touch and see. I'm right here, he says. Go ahead and reach out a hand. It's me. You might be aware that the four Gospels we have in our Bible are not the only accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that were circulating in the decades and centuries after his death. A number of books about Jesus made the rounds in the ancient world that were deliberately left out for one reason or another when, it, when the uh, Bible itself as we know it was pulled together. Several of these fall under the heading of Gnostic Gospels, and one thing that they share in common is a discomfort with the bodily resurrection. Jesus does appear to his followers in these other Gospels as well, but he tends to be in some disembodied form, sort of an airy spirit, passing on secret wisdom that will help the faithful to escape the world the way he has. It's a different way of telling the story, and in some ways that depiction might have been a little more palatable to people in Jesus' time than talk of a bodily resurrection, maybe a little bit closer to popular understandings of life and death. People could get their minds around wisdom that made life more livable, and the idea of an immortal soul was common in the first century as well. But that's not the view that's preserved in the Bible. Jesus has not escaped the world and left behind bodily existence. Luke is pretty emphatic about this. You can't finish this gospel and come away with the idea that Jesus' resurrection was merely spiritual or only a sort of metaphor for continued faith or the idea that Jesus' mission would go on. No, Jesus has hands and feet to be touched here. He asks for some fish and he chews and swallows right in front of his friends. Crunch crunch, gulp. This was not an easy image for people in Jesus' time to grasp, and I'm pretty sure it's not much easier for us today. It's very hard to get our minds around the idea of a resurrected body. It's uncomfortable, it's baffling, and yet the Bible insists on it. So why is it so important for Luke and the other gospel writers to show that the risen Jesus wasn't a ghost, a disembodied spirit, but in fact, an individual with a human body. I love what Rowan Williams has to say about this question. Williams says it's important that Jesus has a body because it shows us that even in the resurrection, he is never simply to be equated with his followers. Of course, we say that the risen Christ is present with us, but he doesn't only live inside our community or in our minds or in our faith. He is still out there as well. The church still meets Jesus as the other, a stranger, William says. It never absorbs him into itself so that he ceases to be its lover and its judge. 
Christ is there to be encountered in the refugee, in the stranger, in the neighbor suffering injustice or discrimination, in the fellow traveler on the road. He keeps coming to us in concrete bodily ways, and we are given the opportunity again and again to receive him, to welcome him, to make a place for him at the table. This is how we keep living out our resurrection faith and how we keep encountering Jesus in real flesh and blood relationships, in the embrace of real wounded human bodies. The unghostly Jesus of Luke's story reminds us of just that fact. There's a story that's told in the U.S. uh, about a couple of tourists visiting Amish country. The Amish are a group of Anabaptists closely related to Mennonites who actually have their roots in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. They live mostly in Pennsylvania in the U.S. and maintain a particular way of life that's marked by simple living and a reluctance to adopt modern technologies and conveniences and also by Christian pacifism. They're a relatively small group, but because of their unique lifestyle and culture, their communities can attract quite a lot of attention sometimes. So a couple of tourists were driving through Amish country one day when they saw a farmer at work in his field near the road. And they pulled over and engaged him in a conversation, asking about his life and his experiences. And one of them asked him, are you a Christian? The farmer paused a moment, and then he pointed to the next farmhouse over. Well, he said, you'll have to ask my neighbor. And I like that story very much, because it reminds me that our faith should always be good news for others. Ask my neighbor if I'm a Christian is really a way of saying, is my way of life good news for her? Does my faith make a positive difference in her life? Because if it is a life shaped by Jesus, then it certainly ought to. It's a good question for any Christian community, including ours. How is our faith good news to others? How does it draw us into making concrete differences in the lives of people who are hungry or sick or suffering injustice? Does our faith, in fact, lead us to embrace those who are wounded in our world? What would our neighbors say? I think the stories of the bodily resurrection draw us right to questions like this. The risen Jesus doesn't show up as a wispy spirit with a message that matter isn't important, that only the soul is of any real value. No. He shows up as a human being like us like our neighbors, with skin and bones, with breath and hunger. And in doing so, he points us back to the world around us, to the ordinary bodily tasks of welcoming others, serving meals, bandaging wounds, receiving strangers. I don't know if that's what the disciples had in mind, or the early Christian communities, I don't know if it's what we have in mind either. Really? We might want to say. The resurrection, this earth-shaking event that changes everything, just points us back to this world, to its familiar hurts and hopes, 
to the place where I am right now, to the person beside me on the road? Yes, it does. But there is a difference, of course. The resurrection points us back to this world of bodies, back to our neighbors, with the promise that God is at work right here, blessing, redeeming, restoring, with the promise that Jesus is risen, and it is right here that we will keep on meeting him. Amen.